We will be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you want to turn there. But I want to start with this. Um, I'm not standing to read yet, John, sorry. Because <laughs> I want to start with this. The gospel is a glorious thing. It's weighty, it's heavy, it's beautiful, it's magnificent. And let me tell you that as a, a pastor and also as a guy who sticks his head in Bibles and books about the Bible and listens to more sermons than I can probably respond to obediently, that you and I are always in danger of losing the weight, losing the heaviness the awesome reality of the glory of the gospel. This is important. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you hear that? We're in a world that has a lowercase God, to use Paul's language, and he's lowercase because he's not God's equal or opposite. He's not God's even true rival, but nevertheless, he is blinding people, blinding minds from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This means that you are given options, as we all are every day, to draw closer to God, to bask in His glory, to saturate in His presence. And then on the other hand, we're given a phone, a movie, a book, a relationship, a platter of food, a game, or even things that might sound more noble. And if, if causes or if nations or if noble leaders or people are vying for our affections, and if those affections do not align with our God, then we're being given bait by the God of this world to take us away from the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel. The gospel is more fully revealed in the New Testament that we have a God who walks among us, who takes our sin and dies for us and gives us new life. And that is a great gospel. That is a glorious gospel. But even in the Old Testament, there is still the glory, the reality, the amazing truth that here is God with us. God with us. Here is a man, a guy named Abraham, who like the gospel for no reasons or conditions in of himself is told by God to leave his homeland and to found a nation for God's purposes and for God's glory, the nation of Israel. And where we come to now in Israel's history are hundreds of years after Abraham, years after God showed himself in a very real way to be for his people, and delivered the Israelites out of the power of the strongest nation on earth, Egypt. And then we are hundreds of years where in still very real ways, but in lesser ways, God revealed himself to be delivering his people out of the hands after of oppressor after oppressor after oppressor at the time of the judges. 
So I invite you to stand now and read with me in 1 Samuel 4. And maybe some of you recall that we covered the last part of verse 1 last week, so we're going to start in the second part. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned in the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of the God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled before the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we read passages like these, and very quickly the cultural context makes us lost to understand the significance of such things. Um, I pray that as we dive into your word, that you would make this very real and present for us. 
Help us to obey, to love, and to serve you in response of what you would tell us today. I pray your spirit is hovering over us. I pray that your spirit has complete access to all the hearts in this room. And I pray that he is the one who speaks and not I. We ask and we pray this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the first study Bibles I had had a general editor, a well-known evangelist, who it was, it's not important, but he had a little introduction, somewhat an, an autobiographical account. And he scared me. He used a phrase from a 16th century Spanish mystic, a man called St. John of the Cross, who wrote a poem that was later called The Dark Night of the Soul. Dark Night of the Soul. And the premise was this, from this well-known evangelist who wrote in his Bible, is that for anyone to really come to a true, close union with God, they will often, if not assuredly, face a dark night of the soul. And I did not like to hear that. (laughs) I did not want, nor do I want, to go through a dark night of the soul. And this evangelist talked about his dark night, and I don't even remember the story, only that I did not want to go through what he went through. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to experience negative feelings, depression, whatever. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, and we don't like to hear this from our Bibles, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in suffering. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You hear that? From sufferings to seeing glory. In Christ, tragedies can become grace. Tragedies can become grace. I experience this every time I sin. That's a tragedy. And then I'm forgiven. It seems, I hate to say it, but it seems as I pray for forgiveness and seek repentance that oftentimes I get a boost in my sermon writing. <laughs> it feels awkward. I go from sinning to, to now I'm going to feed the church because I'm such a great person. <laughs> but whether it be sin and thus guilt and seeking forgiveness or, or tragedies and suddenly we discover we aren't in control again, that we seek God because as if by miracle we remember he's in control those times. A tragedy is coming upon the Israelites. We see again in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it informs us that the Philistines are in fact the aggressors here. So it's not that Israel wants to war with the Philistines for the fun of it. Rather, The book of Judges actually gives us a history of Philistine aggression against Israel. In Judges 13, you know the story, hopefully, of Samson. We're told that the Philistines have enslaved Israel, and Samson rises up. And in Judges 16, the last mention of the Philistines is when Samson breaks the pillars in a house, and the house collapses on the noblemen of the Philistines. And so it's likely that the Philistines probably have a bone to pick with Israel. 
And so about Israel, the author goes on to say that they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The Israelites have been defeated. That's a tragedy. For believers who want to maintain their belief and maintain their standing in the covenant community, in the church, usually two responses can happen. Now, I'm going to mention a third response, and that might be to lose one's faith. (laughs) But for those who respond with their faith intact, I believe that there is still a right way to respond and a wrong way. And we're about to be given an example of the wrong way. The elders of Israel... These are likely the same offices that were set up in Exodus 18 in the time of Moses. The nation of Israel is getting big and all the people of Israel are coming to Moses with all their tiffs. And Moses' father-in-law Jethro has a bit of common sense about him and he says, what are you doing? I mean, there's a lot of people who are coming to you. Set up elders, chiefs, rulers over the tribes and let them handle these things. Delegate power. (laughs) Biblically, we see at times, even after this time, and in the monarchy, that elders have a lot of power. Uh, There is a time later on in in the book of Samuel where Saul is caught red-handed doing something bad. And what does Saul say to Samuel? Please restore me among the elders. The elders have a lot of power. And in fact, it is the elders who will demand a king from Samuel. After this event, after the loss from the hand of the Philistines, the elders ask, why did the Lord let this happen? And so they come up with this idea. Verse 3 again, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you're familiar with the book of Samuel, which if you've been here the last few weeks, you should be. We should begin to see the picture that this isn't a good idea. Because early on in the narrative of 1 Samuel, we have Eli hearing that his sons are corrupt. And that his priesthood is coming to nothing. Verse 5 And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Right? So so Israel's feeling pretty confident. Yay, God's here. He showed up now. And round two, we're going to win. Our star player has taken the field. Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard that the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, it's humorous to me that some commentators, uh, they scratch their heads and they try to explain how the Philistines could get their story wrong. 
Like here are the Philistines referring to Israel as polytheistic. They say they have, quote, mighty gods, and then they get the Exodus story wrong. They say that one of those gods struck down the Egyptians in, with every sort of plague in the wilderness. But from the get-go, Yahweh has declared himself to be the only God, and he delivered Israel from the Egyptians, not in the wilderness, but out of Egypt. And so the scholars and are sweating beads. How do we reconcile this? A contradiction. But finally, some commentators get smart and they use common sense and they say, well, let's consider the sources. <laughs> These are Philistines talking. They may not be 100% familiar with Israel or how they operate. They know well enough to know that the Israelites were enslaved for hundreds of years and were delivered from Egypt, but they get a little confused and muddy on the details. But something else could be at play here. The Philistines could be correct with what they observe. Israel is in the time of the judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And we're told that Israelites were often quick to start worshiping other gods. Gods of the nations that they have taken over. So the Philistines could be right to say, here come one of their gods. Hey, was it the God that delivered them from Egypt? Because it could be that the Israelites are merely using Yahweh as one of their many gods that they're worshiping. The Philistines could be a convicting voice to Israel. Who should be the sons and daughters of the one true God. But they are guilty as charged by the Philistines, confused about the account of the Exodus. Israel has become to other nations just another nation. And all of this talk of one God, Yahweh, many gods, plural, and you and I can get lost in cultural context. But let me bring it home for you, Christian. Because many of us just take out the metal, the stone, and the wood, but the lowercase gods are still there. And we'll stir, we'll, we will still be serving them. We may not erect temples, but we erect fridges, entertainment centers, and we find our gods anywhere and everywhere. And when tragedy hits, all we do is say, out of all my gods, maybe the one God I should be serving will help me here. You hear that? Sometimes, sometimes we call on God to help us out and we feel better, which is why we start still paying homage and worshiping our other gods in the process. I'm having a bad season. Oh, dear Lord, help me out. And then we say, I deserve to get drunk. And we serve our lowercase God. I deserve to pig out on some ice cream and some popcorn. It's been a hard season and I deserve to be wasteful with the money that God has entrusted me and buy me a good present. That will take up some more time from me serving God directly. Israel, in a state of complacency, oops, we forgot God, let's call him to the front lines. He'll help us. Well, one Philistine rallies his men. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Then they fled every man to his home. In other words, they're abandoning military service altogether. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. We cannot overestimate or overstate the significance of this loss. 
One of my commentators would put it up there with the loss that Jeremiah feels as he's writing lamentations and Jerusalem is sieged. Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is, where Hopni and Phineas came from, was basically a pre-Jerusalem. It is believed that the Philistines didn't stop here, but then they went and they raised Shiloh. And Jeremiah would refer to its significance in his prophecies. In fact, I have homework for you. You can read Jeremiah 7, 8 through 15 later. Jeremiah 7, 8 through 15. And in it, God basically lays the case that I will do Shiloh 2.0 to Jerusalem because of the way my people are acting. The ark is captured. This was believed to be the very presence of God. God says in Exodus 25, 22 about the ark, there I will meet with you. I will speak with you. Along with the ark, two of the probably most highest priestly offices in the land died. Now, thanks to the author of 1 Samuel and how he set up the narrative, we know why, and perhaps we expected the blow, but that these priests are wicked and corrupt. God told Eli that they would both die on the same day, and then that would be a sign that what God spoke about Eli's house coming to an end is going to take place. But imagine for the people of Israel and for all Israel knows the same God that delivered them from the mightiest empire on earth, Egypt, has suffered defeat and has been taken by a very much smaller power. Obviously a power to be reckoned with the Philistines. See, for the people, they could be saying our God is dead and our priests are dead. A man of Benjamin. Interestingly enough, Saul is from Benjamin, and some old rabbis think that this might be Saul. We don't know. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh. So that's almost 22 miles. The same day. With his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat, probably a specific seat to show his position, by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, last week we talked quite a bit about Eli and we ended with him accepting the Lord's word through Samuel. And I said that it was probably his one redeeming quality. Eli pressed Samuel to hear what Samuel had heard from God. And Samuel told Eli all the things that God's going to do is to his family, cut him off from the priesthood. And so Eli said, let the Lord do what seems good to him. Interesting enough, this day here in verse 13, we find that Eli is no longer honoring his sons over the Lord as God had convicted him through a prophet. But rather we see his heart trembles for the ark of God. And it will not be the news of his sons dying, but rather the news of the ark being captured that makes him fall and die. So some of my commentators say this could be a narrative way of saying that, hey, Eli has slightly repented. He's really honoring God over his sons. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who comes from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines 
And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hopni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. Again, at the mention of the ark, Eli falls over and dies. Imagine the feeling that Eli must feel. <laughs> he failed. His sons failed. And for all Eli knows, God has left Israel forever. And the idea of God's people are, are no more. Now his, that is Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For her pains came upon her, so she's going into labor because of all this information. The ark of God was taken, both your husband and his dad and his brother, they're all dead. Just a great day. Verse 20, And about this time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. In other words, they're like, Yeah, your husband and family are dead, but now you have a son to live for. <laughs> but... As verse 20 began with, she's about to die, giving childbirth. And so they're urging her to live for her son. It didn't work, but rather, she re we read, she did not answer or pay any attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed from Israel. So here's what Israel has just done. And I wasn't thinking of Dean until after I came up with this great nautical illustration for all of you. Israel is in a boat. <laughs> and in that boat, Israel has loose women, loads of alcohol, extremely fattening food, so just another day for Dean. <laughs> all the other gods... And they've taken that boat and they headed out to a sea of enemy destroyers. Because the enemy destroyers were coming for them. Israel has their oars blown to smithereens. When they're floating without a way to get around, rather than pray, they get on their cell phone and they call their corrupt priesthood and say, Hey, we forgot about God. Maybe he'll help us out. And the priesthood does a daring mission. They chop her in the ark to the sea. And they say, yes, this was the magic tool that ensures all of our victories in the past. And as the priests are explaining this, the destroyers fire around too, and they blow the boat out of the water so much for that idea. That's kind of just what happened. <laughs> But we had Yahweh. We were believers. There's a missing element here. And prophetically speaking, Eli's daughter-in-law has the answer. The glory has departed from Israel. And she might be talking about the ark, but I want to submit that the glory left long before the ark did. In the prophet Isaiah, we hear these words. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I would submit this believer that many of us think we have God. But we have God without the glory. 
We have the gospel without the glory. We have a relationship without the glory. How does this happen? It happens every time you have a Bible and you have a church and you have access to to the presence of God Almighty. But over and over, you find ourselves more ready to pick up the phone and the TV remote and books and ready to open the fridge more ready to look to fame, power, and sex, more ready to turn to our other gods. And if we're only drawn to Him in tragedy, but even in that tragedy, we're drawn to Him and other things, other gods. We can get into a me-centered religion when, yes, God loves and He heals and redeems and He blesses, But if I'm coming to God to be healed and to redeem my situations and to bless me, then I'm coming, not coming to God to love him and to glorify him and to seek his will. Then I got it backwards. And when life doesn't look like that, I'll be healed. And when life doesn't look like that, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. And when I've been a Christian for all the years that I'm counting... But things are just not looking up. Suddenly my faith drops because my faith was really in God for my glory. Just not His glory. Do you hear that? Sometimes it's trickier. Because we may not be living for our glory, but maybe for the glory of a cause we like. I don't know how many Christians I joke with. Yeah, I remember Jesus saying that the three greatest commandments were to love God, love people, and be proud to be an American. When, I hate to break it to you, I don't find America at all in the Bible. I don't find God voting Republican or Democrat. I find God voting for, well, a monarchy, and he's the sovereign. And he doesn't share his glory with another. Do you know what that means? God is not in it for the glory of America. God is not in it for the glory of a democracy, the glory of a political party, the glory of a political leader. He's in it for solely His glory. And am I an anti-American for saying that? I prefer to see it as pro-King Jesus. And as long as Jesus wants America to succeed, great. But if America ever folds in on itself, it might be a bummer to use an understatement. But guess what? My King is still standing. My King is still ruling. And my king will still be sovereign and he does not share his glory. When here's the reality, we're being blinded. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Israel was supposed to be a different people. A different nation, a nation where God inhabits his people and directs his people. And and here's the beauty. When Israel failed, Jesus came to the Jews. He came to his nation and God inhabited his people. And where the people failed, God succeeded in the person and the work of Jesus. And I love what Jesus says in his priestly prayer right before he goes to the cross. The glory that you have given me. That you, Yahweh, have given me, Jesus. I have given to them. Suddenly, through Jesus, you and I have the ability to bear the glory of God. To ascribe weight and to give Him glory. And to not be people who just want the ark for its benefits. But to be people where God does not reside in the ark. 
but rather he resides in us so that when people see us by God's grace, hopefully they will not mistake us for pagans like the rest of the world. By God's grace, Philistines will not say, oh, no, these multiple God worshipers and they're bringing that one God who destroyed Egypt with them today. Rather, by God's grace, when people see us, may we glorify the one true God and may they see, say it's Jesus' people, whatever that means for them. But maybe you're back in conviction land like me. Maybe you're floating in the sea and the destroyers have just blown you out of the water. And you're with Israel saying, I thought I was on God's side, but Pastor Kevin, whenever you talk about reaching for the remote more than the Bible and talked about praying to God on bad days while on the same day eating my loads of ice cream. And you wonder, how do I repent? Because truthfully, here's what I don't like, and I'm sorry if I do this to you often. I don't like problems without the solution. That's why I love the math book. There was a great back section that gave you all the answers. God knows how, and I won't say dumb, God knows how simple that we can be. And so he gives us the same answer every time. Do you want to know how to recover the glory? Do you want to know how the heart changes from, I want the remote and I want to make sacrifices to my preferred God, and I just want Yahweh when I need him? How does the heart change from that to I really, truly understand David whenever he says at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And whenever I hear Jesus, say, forsake all to follow him. That sounds easy because I want to. It's found back in that passage from Second Corinthians in verses three and four again. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. Now, we already hear it in these verses, but God and Paul knows how simple we are. So Paul's going to repeat himself again if we keep on reading. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, friends, look no further than Jesus to be taken captive by his glory. Look with a believing heart and an open mind and you will be filled with the awe of the glory of God. Friends, you and I have to be cold, hard and emotionless to look on the God who became flesh for your sake and my sake. This is akin to God dropping out of the sky into that sea of destroyers and covering what's left of that blasted boat of Israel and saying to the destroyers, take me instead. How can I, in the face of my God who takes on flesh so that his flesh might be then ripped for my sake, how can I again look over his body hanging on the cross and say, I, I just want my beer? I want my comfort instead. I want other gods who have not raised an ounce of energy on my behalf. And him I want to serve. When the one true sovereign God of the universe has sacrificed so much on my behalf. Behold his glory. Father, I have a, a fault of making things hard. Of making things crowded, of making things noisy when 
Father, if there is one central moment in all of history, it is you on the cross dying for our sins. And it is there that you reveal your glory. And it is there that we should return to every time whenever we sin and every time we are tempted. Father, help us to not be about serving other gods. Help us to realize that all the answers for all of our problems, that all the times we need comfort, all the times we need to find some solace in our world. We don't need to retreat into our sins and hide behind closed doors, but we can retreat to the cross of Christ. We can seek you, seek your face. Father, as Joshua said to his people, as Dean read for us, we can consecrate ourselves. We could seek you out once again. So, Father, help us as we go about throughout all our days. Help my friends and help myself with every temptation we face. Help us against the enemy that he wouldn't get a hold of us. Help us to focus on you and your cross. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.